Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Why is the creation so central in early Christian teaching? The doctrine of creation plays a constant and significant role in the theology of the Church Fathers. Not only is it an integral part of the very first article of the Nicene Creed and of short statements of faith that preceded Nicaea, the task of imagining the creation is treated over and over in the writers of the first eight centuries. My aim tonight is to explain why this is so. Now, there are many ways into this topic that we might have taken, and I will come back to some of those at the end of my talk. The path, the path I have chosen to take is one, I hope, that will allow me to show you that appropriate envisioning of the created order was important in the patristic period because such envisioning is an essential part of our thinking about God and God's purposes in Christ. The doctrine of creation, in other words, is so central a part of the period because it is a hinge on which an awful lot turns. In order to make this argument, I'm going to focus this evening on only three figures. Irenaeus of Lyon, who flourished towards the end of the second century, Augustine of Hippo, whose long career as a writer covered the period between his conversion in 386 and his death in 430, and the mighty Alexandrian writer Cyril, bishop of that city between 412 and 444. Before we come directly to these three figures, however, let's take a moment to think about the centrality of the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo in the second century. It is in the generation or two before Irenaeus was writing that we first see clear statements of the doctrine that God creates all things out of nothing. Perhaps the paradigmatic statement of that doctrine is to be found in a strange, but at the time very popular text called the Shepherd of Hermas. There, we find the following simple statement of belief. Quote, first of all, believe that God is one who created and completed all things and made everything that exists out of that which did not, who contains all things, but is himself alone and uncontained. Irenaeus himself will quote this text, and in two places, where he refers to the rule of truth or the rule of faith in the church, he actually speaks only of this doctrine. Thus, for example, Irenaeus writes, quote, The rule of the truth that we hold is this, there is one God Almighty who created all things through his word. He both prepared and made all things out of nothing, just as scripture says, for by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all their hosts by the breath of his mouth. And again, all things were made through him and without him was made not a thing. Another witness is provided by Irenaeus's younger contemporary, Theophilus of Antioch who emphasizes that in creating out of nothing, God lacked nothing. Nothing was coeval with him and was even 
in a striking and strange place, his own place, al-autos yautu topos. Now, the centrality of the doctrine of creation in these second century Christian writers stems in part from their polemical context. The fight with those traditions that modern scholars have termed Gnostic pushed Christians, such as Irenaeus, to articulate how Orthodox Christianity viewed both God's creative act and the status of the cosmos in which we find ourselves. Modern scholarship in English has been reticent about the term Gnostic, aware that it lumps together a number of groups whose doctrines do not always agree. But as our focus this evening is on what Irenaeus positively argues, I'm not going to worry about the question. Suffice it to say that Irenaeus takes himself to be arguing against a variety of groups who distinguish the true God from the creator of this cosmos and against those who see Christ in some form as a messenger not from the creator, but from the one whose activity the creator of this world attempted and failed to imitate. And this is the context within which the doctrine of creation out of nothing becomes a central feature of Christian confession. But before concluding, as some scholars have done, that consequently the doctrine of creation out of nothing is a second century invention, we should think a little harder. One of the most useful recent presentations of the doctrine's history is to be found in an essay by Gary Anderson. Anderson begins by noting that the texts frequently cited to prove that the scriptures teach creation out of nothing, texts such as Genesis 1.1 or 2 Maccabees 7.28, are actually rather ambiguous when we are attentive to them. How then might one see the doctrine as still biblical? Anderson turns to texts such as Isaiah 60, where, speaking in eschatological terms, we find clear assertion that all things come under God's control. God is the one who at the end will be our everlasting light, and darkness will be no more. Texts such as this identify all things, which in earlier tradition seem to contest God's ultimate control, as reality's only permitted existence by the divine for the moment. The final canonical form of the Hebrew scriptures, then, pushes already towards a position encompassed by the later Christian doctrine. There's much more that we might draw from Anderson's very rich essay. But one thing we should immediately take from these few sentences of description is that to understand the importance of the doctrine that God creates out of nothing, we must be deeply attentive to the function that the doctrine plays in theology as a whole. In this context, we can see how the doctrine emerges within the context of early Christian thought, but takes up and doubles down on a set of principles emergent through centuries of explanation in speculation in Hebrew texts about what it means for the Lord to be the one God. Let's now leap to the 180s and 190s of the second century and to Irenaeus himself. Unfortunately, from his pen, only two complete texts survive. 
and the, and the five books of his Against Heresies constitute the vast majority of that corpus. Irenaeus wrote his five books in Lyon, but he was a thinker who had come to southern Gaul from Asia Minor and had deep connections with the Christian community in Rome. Although Lyon can fairly claim to be the most westerly Christian community that we know of at this time, we should not be tempted to think of it as an isolated place. It was a central conduit for trade and troops between Rome and the rest of Gaul, and its bishop seems to have been reasonably well informed about a good part of the Christian world. Nor should we think of him as anti-philosophical, as was once common. He may not have been the most philosophically learned of the early Christian fathers, but he demonstrates a fairly extensive knowledge of and engagement with the pagan learning of his day. But his real genius, I want to suggest, lies in his ability to penetrate to the theological heart of a question. Allow me to focus on two peculiarly fascinating passages that use the Eucharist as the point of departure for discussion of God's creative act as a whole. In Book 4 of Against Heresies, Irenaeus argues that only the Church offers what is accepted by God as a pure and simple sacrifice, that is, the Eucharist. Quote, she, the Church, offers of his creation with thanksgiving, and it is accepted. Irenaeus immediately proceeds to talk about those who cannot offer such a sacrifice. Both Jews and heretics are named because of their common failure to accept the word of God in truth. The heretics, because they differentiate the true father of all from the creator of this world, and thus are unable to offer the father that which is his own. Irenaeus then criticizes the inconsistency of those who celebrate quasi-Eucharistic ceremonies, but do not actually believe that they are offering to the creator and Lord of all that which he has given to them through creation in order that they may offer it back. There is an equal inconsistency, he says, in those who offer the Eucharist, yet do not believe that the flesh will rise. What sense is there in saying that in the Eucharist, the Lord's body and blood give life, and yet when we die, our bodies do not receive life? What offends Irenaeus here is the failure to understand that a true offering must be one in which the first fruits of God's creation are offered back to the one creator. And in this assumption, we begin to see how Irenaeus sees Eucharistic practice as teaching us the relationship that should obtain between the creator and the creation. God, for Irenaeus, exhibits harmony and consistency. God is always what he is and eternally undivided. God's created order similarly exhibits an order in its structure, and a further harmony is to be seen in the unified series of God's economies, his purposes and salvific works within the created order. The creation exists as a gift from God and as the revealing of the divine nature. It is also a gift through which we may be drawn to God. It is a gift in which the fleshly and the spiritual may work together. As we grasp that we have received the gift of existence, we come to recognize the rightness of our thanksgiving 
to the one creator. That which we have been given, we naturally and rightly offer back. And thus for Irenaeus in the Eucharist, we see these harmonies being shown forth, being restored and made visible. The flesh and the spirit are drawn together and united toward and in the word. The true Eucharist of the Church thus involves us in recognising an interchange, one in which we receive the Father's gift of created existence, and that existence is now offered back to the Father. As Irenaeus famously writes, quote, Our doctrine is in harmony with the Eucharist, and the Eucharist in turn confirms our doctrine. For we offer to God the things that are his own, while we proclaim harmoniously the communion of the flesh and the spirit. Near the beginning of Book 5 of Against Heresies, this picture is deepened when Irenaeus returns to the theme, but in a deeply Christological key. Once again, Irenaeus begins by condemning those who imagine that the Lord, quote, came to what did not belong to him, as if he were greedy of others' possessions. The economy which we must recognise is not one in which God has need or in which God takes what is not his. Rather, quote, he kindly poured himself out so that he might gather us into the Father's bosom. The very character of God's interaction with the creation depends upon our grasping the nature of flesh and the material. He writes, Now if this flesh is not saved, Neither did the Lord redeem us with his blood, nor is the cup of the Eucharist a communion in his blood, nor is the bread that we break a communion in his body. For Christ to save, as the scriptures suggest, flesh must be capable of being the means of our salvation, and only if this is so may the Eucharistic elements be the God-given means of our communion with him. Irenaeus expands on this in the following words. Quote, and since we are his members, we are also nourished by the creation. He himself furnishes us with the creation by making the sun rise and making it rain as he wills. He confessed that the cup which is from the creation is his blood, from which he gives growth to our blood. And he affirmed that the bread which is from the creation, is his body, from which he gives growth to our bodies. So the very concept of the body of Christ requires us to admit the role that God has given to the flesh. Our home, the created order, is given us by God, and through that same creation intended to nourish us. We are more truly nourished by being raised to communion with and in him. At this point, obviously enough, Irenaeus's discussion of the appropriateness of our offering to God what he has given us is concentrated through attention to the Incarnation. If we understand truly that the Word has taken flesh, then we must also understand that the created order is taken into Christ as his body and blood and becomes key in our salvation. Note that Irenaeus takes for granted in all of this a basic point that he has discussed at great length in books one to three. There is one God who is the creator of all things. 
what we are now seeing is our Irenaeus draw out the basic consequences of that position. And that involves us in meditating on the character of God's relationship to that which he has created. Finally, Irenaeus expands this argument into a complex set of mutually informing harmonies. Quote, By way of illustration, a branch of the vine, when placed in the ground, will produce fruit in due time, through God's Spirit, who holds all things together. All things that through wisdom serve the use of men. Besides, when they receive the word of God, they become the Eucharist, which is Christ's body and blood. Now in like manner, our bodies, having been nourished by the Eucharist and buried in the earth and decomposed into the earth, will rise in due time when the word of God bestows resurrection on them for the glory of the Father, who truly surrounds this mortal body with immortality. All of this is because God's power is made perfect in weakness so that we might not have life as if from ourselves, but that by experience we might learn that we possess perpetual continuance because of his greatness, but not because of our nature. So the basic truth of the created order is that the creation produces fruit through the spirit who holds all things together. God as creator is also the one who holds all things in existence. And the Eucharist parallels this truth. God's word enters into created realities and transforms them into his living body and blood. And finally, this truth parallels the death and resurrection of our bodies raised by the word. In the case of each of these parallels, we should learn the true nature of created being and something of the creator. We are intended for eternal life, but that comes to us not from ourselves, but from divine gift. And yet this does not involve a devaluation of the created order, because God's power is made perfect in weakness, is revealed in weakness. It is into flesh that God comes, and it is flesh to which God gives life and which he raises. The perfect, harmonious, rational nature of the divine power is seen in its creative and redemptive activity. Thus, envisaging the created order in its relationship to its creator is an essential part of envisaging the creator himself. It's worth noting, and I'll return to this later in the talk, that Irenaeus was suspicious of what modern scholars have termed logos theologies. That is, theologies which see the word as latent in the Father and then generated or spoken as an intermediary through which the creation occurs. By this stage in his writing, Irenaeus emphasizes that the Father's two hands are eternally with him and that their presence simply is the presence of God. Thus, when we speak of God's action in taking up and uniting to him the flesh, we see Irenaeus speaking with remarkable directness about the immediacy with which the one creator is present to the creation. We see in Irenaeus little discussion of causal models, indeed little direct discussion of divine presence, 
that is not mediated through biblical narratives of creating and redeeming. And yet this does not mean that we should simply conclude this reflects a lack of sophistication. We see in the passages that I have referred you to a deeply held commitment to principles that will remain at the heart of orthodox Christian accounts of the creation. The creation is not only created by God out of nothing, it is constantly maintained and given life through the presence of God to the creation. And that creation in turn both reveals the creator if it is seen correctly, and it is the means by which our fallen natures are restored and drawn back to God. The creation is not somehow left behind as we ascend away from created existence, but through our mysterious union with Christ, the creation is offered to its creator and restored in him. It's time now to leap forward from the end of the second century to the beginning of the fifth century. As anyone who has thought about creation in the patristic period should recognize, this is an odd move to make because I miss out the figure of origin of Alexandria. But I have my reasons, and perhaps his speculative work will crop up when we turn to questions. Augustine of Hippo was preoccupied not only with God and with desire for God, but also with the human struggle, his own struggle to understand the creation and to understand it as creation. He attempted no fewer than four commentaries on the beginning of Genesis. But I'm not going to comment on any of them tonight, but instead on the first two of his homilies or tractates on John's Gospel. These homilies take us to the heart of Augustine's vision of God's creative activity. Two related passages in these sermons take us to the heart of how Augustine envisions God's activity of both creating and sustaining, while the remainder of these two documents offer us an account of what I will call the moral, spiritual and intellectual labour involved in trying to think both this creative activity and what it means to be a creature. In the first of these two passages, found in the first tractate on John, Augustine endeavours to explain the complex phrase that runs across John 1, 3 to 4. Quod factum est in illo vita est. Augustine's version here differs a tiny bit from the Vulgate text, but not in a significant way. Augustine assumes there are two ways one might take this simple text. The first is to read it as quod factum est in illo, comma, vita est. That which was made in him, comma, is life. But if we read the text in this way, then what we are saying is that everything made is life, because everything was made through him, and everything is made in wisdom, who is Christ. Such a reading, he says, must be wrong, because it would fight against the basic order that we should observe in things, and to which we'll return. It will not do, Augustine suggests, for us to think of rocks as life in the same sense that we are life. Rather, we must read the sentence as quod factum est, comma, in illo vita est. What is made is, in him, life. To explain what he means by this, Augustine launches into an extended simile. Quote, an artisan, a faber, makes 
the chest, makes a chest. First, he has a design of the chest in his mind. For if he did not have the chest in his mind, how could he work to craft it? Invisibly in the artist's mind, it will be visible once it is produced. Once made, will it no longer be in the artisan's mind? It is both fashioned in fact and yet still in the mind. The chest he made is not living. It is the chest in his mind which is alive, because the soul of the craftsman, where all things are before they are produced, is in fact living. So it is, my dearest brothers and sisters, that the wisdom of God, through whom all things were made, contains all things in the mind before she fashions them. Consequently, all the things that are made through such a design are not thereby life, but whatever has been made is alive in him. As he then goes on to explain, the life that is the wisdom of God is also light. That life, then, is the light of all. To be a created reality, to be one that possesses the gift of intellect, is to be a reality alive in the word, through whom all things came to be and in whom all exist. The life that we see around us results from the action of the word in whom all things are planned from eternity. And it is a participation, although no such technical term is used here, in the word. In the second tractate, Augustine presses further and he corrects the simile that he's given in the first tractate, probably delivered the day before. He comments on John 1.10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. The crux of the matter for Augustine is to understand the phrase, he was in the world. Quote, if he came here, where was he? He was in the world. He both was here and he came here. He was here by his divinity. He came here by his flesh, because when he came here by his divinity, he could not be seen by the blind and the unjust. Look, here he is, even now, and he was here, and he is always here, and he never departs. He departs nowhere. But he is not in the world as the sky is in the world, the sun, the moon and stars are in the world, trees, cattle, people are in the world. That is not how he was in the world. But how was he? Like a master craftsman in command of what he made. He did not make it, you see, in the way that an artisan makes things. The chest an artisan makes is outside him and in a different place from him when it is being fashioned. It is beside him, of course, but the one who fashions it sits in a different place and is outside the thing he is fashioning. But God is present in the world he is fashioning. He does not stand aside from it and handle the matter he is working on, so to say, from the outside. He makes what he makes by the presence of his majesty, Prisentia Maestatis, Facit quod facit. By his presence he governs what he has made. In Tractate 1, Augustine, the, sorry, in Tractate 1, the Latin term that Augustine uses for the artisan is faber. Here, 
Faber is contrasted with another Latin term, artifacts. The former term in Latin almost always signifies someone who makes material things by hand. Carpenters, smiths, potters. The latter term, artifacts, can include these professions, but it extends to a much broader realm of expertise. So the skilled teacher of the liberal arts is also an artifacts. In Cicero's translation of the Timaeus, God is the artifacts et conditor of the city. In Hebrews 11.10, the same phrase is used. Abraham, in faith, quote, looked forward to the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Augustine's use of this rich term, artifacts, takes us out of the realm of physical construction and into a far more complex set of questions about divine action. And those are focused in the terse phrasing, presentia maestatis facit quod facit. He makes what he makes by the presence of his majesty. The term presentia, presence, here does double duty. In the first place, it suggests that God makes by his presence, by the very opposite of making a space in which to create beside him. The creation comes to be because of a presence that escapes entirely any separation in space. But in the second place, I think it's fair to read into this also Augustine's belief that God makes not by a sequential process, let alone one preceded by discursive planning. God makes simply by the presence of his majesty. Thus God's presence is the means by which the creation comes to be and is governed. Reflection on the sheer mystery of divine presence and on the complex labour required for us to speak well of that presence is actually a constant theme in Augustine's corpus. The theme is a central concern in Book 10 of the Confessions. I think I would prefer to say that opening up this question is actually the very reason that Book 10 is in the Confessions. Augustine has constructed a narrative in which God has slowly reshaped his memory so that at the vital moment he is able to interpret the voice he cannot understand as an instruction to open the scriptures at random. It is then no surprise that Augustine will spend much energy puzzling over where and how God may be said to be present to us. But perhaps the most interesting discussion of this theme occurs at the end of Book 10 of On the Trinity, when Augustine worries in a circular fashion about what it might mean to imagine the soul not as an object separated from us by space. Merely to say the word soul, he says, leads us implicitly to place an imaginary object at a distance and then to try and observe it and reflect upon it as something separate from us. But this reflection on the difficulty we have in thinking the soul is given to us as a way of bringing home the task we face and the sheer difficulty of that task in thinking about God's presence to us and the presence of each of the divine persons to each other. In neither case are spatial differentiations of any use. In both of these texts, Confessions 10 and On the Trinity 10, one of Augustine's central purposes is to draw out for us the difficulties that face 
any attempt to consider these problems, the complex intellectual and spiritual labor involved. Earlier in the paper, I sketched some of an essay by Gary Anderson. At that point, I missed out one of his main conclusions. There, Anderson reflects on David Bentley Hart's comment in his book, The Doors of the Sea, that the doctrine of creation out of nothing is a, quote, moral and spiritual labor. Spiritual here, I'd like to take as including also intellectual, because I have sympathy for Thomists, and to extend the comment not only to the particular task of grasping creation out of nothing, but far more broader themes in the doctrine of creation. To learn to wonder at the creation as it is, that is, as existing from God, as structured and ordered, as finding its true life in God, and at the same time, to learn to speak well of the ineffable distinction between creator and creation is a labour of heart and mind, and a labour that ultimately must be given us in grace. Now, Augustine beautifully illustrates the point that Anderson takes from David Hart. At the beginning of his first tractate, Augustine tells us that John is one of the mountains of Psalm 120 to which we must lift up our eyes. John has been inspired by God to speak in human words of the divine. How then do we lift up our eyes? Most importantly, Augustine says, by lifting our hearts to scripture when it is read, by trusting it by attempting to plumb its depths, by recognising that it speaks of realities beyond us. However far we can actually grow in understanding, he says, what matters is that we lift up our hearts first and recognise that my help is from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And here, in this emphasis on lifting up the heart, we see how Augustine manages to unite spiritual and intellectual labour. For those who are able to follow him intellectually, Augustine attempts to set out a path of ascent. In Tractate 1, we are told to attend to the structure, the power, the harmony of the creation in order to consider something about the word, its author. Against the Manichaeans, we must strive to recognize that everything is created by God in its various gradations. But at the culmination of this account, we must above all recognize that we fail through the sin to see. We are the blind placed in front of the sun, and it is the spiritual labor of cleansing our eyes to see the sun that is there that must come first. At the beginning of the second tractate, Augustine moves seamlessly between calling for us to think towards the light of uncreated wisdom and for us to accept that the only ship that will carry us across the great ocean that separates us from divine wisdom is the wood of the cross. He says, it is better then not to see with the mind that which is, and nevertheless not to depart from the cross of Christ, than to see it with the mind and to despise the cross of Christ. Thus, there is an intellectual labor but it is one that finds its foundation in a spiritual labour, and hence is a labour to which all Christians are called, whatever their intellectual gifts. We must begin our journey toward knowledge of the divine wisdom and of the created order itself 
through recognizing that the word is here. Look, he is here even now, Augustine writes, and he was here and he never departs. He departs nowhere. It is essential, though, that you have a vantage point from which to see that he never departs from you. And that vantage point, that lamp with which we seek the day, as Augustine says, is the incarnate Christ witnessed to by the mountains such as John the theologian. Now let me note one more feature of Augustine's account before we move on. Augustine's account of the creation in the text that we have seen is one that owes a great debt to Nicene Trinitarian theology. When word and spirit act, they act inseparably from the Father, and their presence simply is the immediate presence of the divine mystery. Son and spirit are most certainly sent by the Father, but they are not sent as intermediaries between God and creation. Indeed, across these two tractates, the paradigmatic examples of those who fail to cling to the wood of the cross are philosophers and their pride, and the Arians who do not acknowledge the word to be true God. Noting the Trinitarian foundations of Augustine's vision should draw our attention to the fact that the doctrine of creation we find in all of the great fathers of the 4th and 5th century church depends upon the accomplishment of the Trinitarian controversies of the 4th century. But rather than draw this out by commenting more on Augustine, I want to turn to his younger contemporary, Cyril of Alexandria. Cyril's commentary on John contains a strong polemic against all anti-Nicene traditions, for which he uses the simple term Arian. In his discussion of the first verses of the Gospel, Trinitarian theology is always centre stage. What does it mean, he asks, the scripture says, in the beginning was the word? A true beginning must have no prior beginning, and the Son thus exists eternally, but this remains for us ineffable. No temporal beginning may be attributed to the only begotten, quote, through all time he was in his Father as in a source. The Word was his wisdom, power, imprint, radiance and image. The Son will always be in the Father and with him and radiating from him according to the ineffable mode of divine generation. Considering John 1.3, Cyril emphasises that by telling us that all things are created through the only begotten, the theologian, that is John, tells us that the Son must possess the full power of the Father. Quote, Since we believe that all things have come to be through the Son, we must conclude that he lies outside all things, and we exclude him from the nature and species of originate beings we will finally confess him to be nothing else than God from God by nature. Just because it says that what exists came to be through him, that does not mean that the Son should be introduced to us as an underling. He does not receive the power to create from someone else, but rather he himself alone, since he is the power of God, works all things as the only begotten Son. But of course, the Father and the Spirit also work with him and accompany him. This last comment, that the Son does not work alone, is then subject to an extensive expansion on the unique co-working of the three persons, 
that I will save you from. Cyril comes eventually to John 1.4, and while he reads the text itself somewhat differently from Augustine, it is interesting how the two accounts run in parallel. Quote, All things came into being through him, through the word, and without him not one thing was called into being. The Son not only gifts creation by calling it into being, but once it has come into being, he also holds it together through himself. He mixes himself in, so to speak, with those things that do not have eternal being by their own nature, and he becomes life to those things that exist, so that once they have come into being, they may remain and be preserved, each one according to the definition of its own nature. Therefore, the evangelist has to say that which came into being, in it, was life. Not only does he say that all things came into being through him, but also that whatever came into being, in it, was life. That is, in it was the only begotten word of God, the origin and sustainer of all things visible and invisible. Since he is himself life by nature, he grants being, life and motion in many ways to all that exists. He does not do this by dividing himself in some way and changing into each of the creatures that are distinct by nature. Instead, there is one life for all that goes into each of the creatures as befits it and as it is able to participate. So Cyril's treatment of John 1, 3 to 4 parallels Augustine's, differing mainly in that Cyril focuses overtly on the ways in which his reading is founded on a Nicene Trinitarian theology. Had we more time, I would like to take us now on a brief tour of Cyril's own comments on Christ as the bread that has come down from heaven. One brief comment this evening must suffice. In a way that nicely dovetails with Irenaeus some centuries before, Cyril writes, quote, Since the life-giving word of God has taken up residence in the flesh, he has transformed it so that his own good attribute, that is life, is here. And since in an ineffable mode of union, he has completely, completely come together with it. He has rendered it life-giving, just as he himself is by nature. For this reason, the body of Christ gives life to those who participate in it. So it is because Christ's flesh is life-giving that, as he says, those who take the bread of life into themselves will have immortality as a reward. Cyril's opponents are not Irenaeus's but his theology here revolves around a vision of the triune God's immediate presence to the creation and the work of Son and Spirit on redeeming that creation in and through its fleshly reality. The common themes between Augustine and Cyril should be relatively clear. Both found their theologies of, cre found their theologies of creation on a Nicene theology in which the unique transcendence of the divine enables the creator to be present to and in his creation. Both treat that creative and governing activity as one in which the true existence of all that we see is to be found in the creating word spoken eternally. And indeed we are seeing here themes that will run throughout the patristic period. 
Centuries later, in the 8th century, John Damascene, later termed the last of the fathers, will write as follows, quote, The divine radiance and energy transmits to all things in accordance with their nature, and is itself the being of what exists, the life of what is alive, the rationality of what is rational, and the intellect of what is intellectual, since it is beyond mind, beyond rationality, beyond life, and beyond essence. From one perspective, the world of John is rather different from that of Augustine and Cyril. The corpus of Dionysius the Areopagite comes between them and gives to John the thoughts behind those final clauses. But from another perspective, John shows the deep continuity that exists between the patristic thought of the early 5th century and the 8th. And indeed, I began with Irenaeus partly to show how much of what we find in Cyril and Augustine begins with Irenaeus's account of God's relationship to the material, and partly because Irenaeus's ways of speaking about the Father and his word and spirit pushes towards the immediacy of presence and action that the post-Nicene period makes normative for Christian orthodoxy. Allow me to end by commenting on the inadequacy of my account. I chose a particular path in this talk that would allow me to draw out a couple of very basic principles. In doing so, I've ignored the long patristic tradition of commentary on the very first chapters of Genesis, a tradition that takes us from Theophilus of Antioch in the 180s, through Origen's various speculations, and on to Basil of Caesarea's nine homilies on the six days of creation, Gregory of Nyssa's supplementary work on the making of man, and Augustine's own efforts at commentary on Genesis. But had I taken that path, three things would have been constant, and at the end, it may be helpful to signal them very briefly. First, we would have seen a long tradition of cannibalizing and adapting a wide variety of ancient scientific and philosophical traditions to argue for the created order as harmonious and rationally ordered. Second, we would have seen a constant focus on the ways in which that harmony and rational order is intended to enable our attention to the creator, however much the symbolic qualities of the cosmos are now occluded as a consequence of sin. Indeed, one might even say that the long tradition of reflection on the creation is intended in part as the setting out of a spiritual and intellectual labour, as we learn again to see properly the garden in which our creator placed us. And then we reach finally the third near constant, reflection on the text of Genesis as a symbolic presentation of our recreation in Christ. Attention to the creation of the world by the triune God is so central for patristic writers because the cre that creation is our home and this home is intended to reveal to us as far as is possible our creator and it's through the incarnate word's entry into our home, into the creation, into a cosmos that in any case exists always in him, that we will be created. And it is in the Eucharist, then, that we see creation's nature, intended purpose, and redemption. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, 
please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.